Father, I thank you that we have had the opportunity to meditate on your great work for us, your constant care for us, ultimately manifested in the coming and in the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray that that same message would come through my all too imperfect and feeble lips here this morning. For those you've gathered, that they would be edified and that you would be glorified. We ask this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, go ahead and be seated. And kids, you can be dismissed with Miss Jen Schneider in the back to your own lesson time for Sprouts. Well, welcome again, church, to Hillside. It's good to be here with you this Sunday after Memorial Day weekend, this second Sunday after Pentecost. Today we're beginning a new four-part series, and I figured to begin today's service, I put together a few video clips for you with a, well, with, I think, a subtle hint, hopefully not too subtle, but a subtle hint as to what this series will be all about. So, without further ado, let's go ahead and roll that clip. Not sure if you, um, if you caught it, but for you Rhodes Scholars out there that did pick up on it, yes, we're going to be talking about love for the next number of weeks, and specifically we'll be looking at the four different words in ancient Greek that were used to kind of express the different sorts of love that each of us may experience in this lifetime. And what a great topic, right? I mean... As you saw, I mean, the vast majority of the songs that really have ever been written that have uh, gone anywhere or have any degree of fame tend to be written about the subject of love, and the same is true for our literature and, for that matter, our films. It's just, it's a prominent theme no matter where you go. But the kind of love described most often in these various forms of art, whether it's the kind of love that Tina Turner sings about or the kind of love that Jay Giles says stinks, is what best could be referred to as erotic love, which is the word in Greek, eros. I'm not going to be talking about that kind of love today. We will at some point in this series. But no, the kind of love I'm going to be talking about today is indeed the most important sort of love, and that is what is known as agape love. That's the word for it in Greek, agape. And to the writers of the New Testament, there is no love more significant because at bottom, it is the kind of love that God has coming from himself for the world. 
So to that end, let's look at the most famous chapter about love found in the scriptures, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Yes, we're going to read that passage even though we are not at a wedding. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It reads like this. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all the things. Love never ends. We'll stop there. If you look at verses 1 through 3 of our text that we just read, you can see that the Apostle Paul, who's writing this letter, is very convinced about the significance and the superiority of agape love. Verse 1, Paul says, even if you're an amazing speaker, if you're the greatest preacher the planet has ever known, but have not agape love, you're just a resounding gong. In verse 2, he says, even if you have a monster intellect and great spiritual acumen, but have not love, then you're no things. Finally, in verse 3, he says, even if you're the most generous person in the world, even willing to sacrifice your body for another, but still, even, even so, if you have not agape love, then it's all for nothing. That's how important this love is. It is the foundation for everything we do. And thankfully, God doesn't just tell us how important it is. But in this passage, among many other passages, he actually demonstrates and defines this love for us. And so what we're going to spend the rest of our time together going over is exactly that. What really is this godly, this agape love? How do we define that? Well, first of all, Paul points out that this agape love is long-suffering. Long-suffering. What we mean by long-suffering is kind of intertwined with the words he also uses here, patient and kind. So right off the, the bat, the Bible's definition of love is something almost entirely different than our sort of modern Hollywood definition of it. In our modern version of love, we think it's a spark that we have with someone. It's a connection. We believe it's someone that does something for us. This view of love is primarily interested in what it receives from the other. Not that this isn't part of love or can't be part of love. In loving someone else, often that person will receive much in return. But the Bible's definition acknowledges the reality of life also. Anybody who's really loved someone knows that inevitably that relationship may not always bring, well, the butterflies of joy and delight. 
It may bring hurt and challenge at some point. Godly love is defined by its willingness to stay the course even when things get rough. C.S. Lewis understood this well. He wrote, To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But, but, in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken, it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. I've, I've mentioned many times from this pulpit that my grandparents were married for 60 plus years. And as long as I knew them in my lifetime growing up as a kid, it seemed like they were still in mad love with each other. You know, the kind of like, you know, annoying love. Where like my grandma would walk into the room and my grandpa would nudge me on the shoulder and he'd say, look at that woman. She's the most beautiful woman on the planet, you know. And my grandma would still blush, you know, after 60 years of marriage, like, woo. And of course, as a grandson to both of them, it was just like, ugh, you know, that's, come on, like, but it was clear that they still loved each other and they were faithful to each other all their life long until they both went on to meet their Lord. And so when I was about to be married to my bride, I wanted the advice of who I saw as the expert at keeping things, well, filled with love. And so I went to my grandfather and I said, Grandpa, what's the secret? How have you had 60 years of marital bliss and happiness? And my grandpa's response stunned me because he said, Eric, you should know that as happy as we have been and as, I'm, as happy as I am to be married to your grandmother, that it wasn't always like this. He says, I can remember a time for about two plus years where every time I came home from work, it was a battle for me to go inside because I didn't want anything to do with your grandmother. I didn't want to be near her. She didn't want to be near me. We kind of couldn't stand the sight of each other. And it went on for a lot longer than I wish it would have. And I was stunned. I'm like, well, thanks a lot for the pep talk. <laughs> About to get married to my wife, and you're just, ugh, you know. And then he said, if there's any secret I have for you for a long-lasting marriage... No, it eventually will get better, so keep going inside. When you're tempted to drive away, keep going inside. It was obviously a shot of reality I wasn't prepared for and that I hardly could imagine being with Missy ready to get married, but as I've thought about it over time, 
the willingness to suffer for the other, to commit yourself to the other no matter what, unless, unless, of course, there's physical danger or abandonment or adultery. That's a different scenario, and the Bible discusses that. But, but generally speaking, really, at the heart of what Paul is saying here is if we want to define godly love, there's going to be a long-suffering element to it no matter what relationship we're in. Love is patient. Love is kind. But we're not done. We're not done. God's love is also humble, the apostle points out. He says it this way, love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Again, when we think of the common picture of love that is given to us, we may think of someone saying, I'll meet you halfway, but I'm not going to be a doormat. Paul seems to indicate that, in fact, love seeks the opposite. In his letter to the Philippians, he writes what I believe to be one of the strongest doses of theological medicine in all of his writings. Here's what he says. Listen very carefully to this. I read it in the Greek. It's backed up. This is exactly what he says. And I warn you, it's not easy to hear. Quote, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, and this is where it gets difficult. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I would resonate immediately with Paul's words here if he said, count others as significant as yourself. Good. But count others more significant than myself, and the discomfort begins. Tim Keller put it well, he said, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself, it is thinking of myself less. It is selflessness on behalf of other people so much that it has really no time to focus on the self and its needs that is being described here. Love is, is too embarrassed to get all the attention for the good deeds done. It wants the spotlight shined on others' good deeds. It doesn't want the platform or the applause, but it, it happily applauds all the others. That's the, the idea being shown here. It doesn't boast or it's not envious. Every once in a while, every once in a while, you do come across an example of this kind of thing. A while back, I read a story about an interim president of Kentucky State University named Raymond Burse. He was elected, and he purposely, he himself, elected to have his salary decreased from $349,000 to $259,000. Why? For the purpose of boosting the paychecks of the university's lowest paid workers. Took nearly a $100,000 pay cut so that the lowest paid could get paid more. 
asked why he did it, he simply said, I think it's my job as the leader here to care about the people that serve, and I want to do the very best by them. This was a display of humility, a demonstration of this kind of love for his employees. Thirdly, Paul, Paul says, love is forgiving. Love is forgiving. Paul says it this way in our text, love is not irritable or resentful. Well, the word for resentful, you may have a translation that actually translates it this way, but it literally could be said, uh, does not keep a record of wrongs does not keep a record of wrongs. Real love forgives. I, I emphasized this last week, but it's just a necessity. There's no way of having real relationship, real community, real anything apart from it. I know a person who each year, upon sending out Christmas gifts or Christmas cards, would keep a running tally of all that sent her back a Christmas card or a Christmas gift. And if a person did not send her back a Christmas card or Christmas gift, she wrote a check next to their name and they were off the list the next year for a gift. It's natural. Makes sense. Scratch my back, I scratch your back. But, but love isn't keeping a tally of the wrong. It's not keeping a record. What it means practically for you and I is if we refuse to forgive, then we literally cannot say that we're expressing a godly love for them. But I don't want you to hear me saying this flippantly because I know that it's easy for me, the preacher from the bully pulpit up here, to just say like, hey man, just forgive. Hey, just let it go. I know how hard it is. Believe me, I know the act of forgiveness is, by definition, a willfulness to absorb pain done to you without giving it back out. That's literally the definition of it. It's going to be painful, and I'm not saying it isn't. To some extent, to love, as C.S. Lewis said again, is this recognition that there's going to be pain involved. I'll give you a fairly graphic example of this. A number of years ago, the nation was shocked to hear about three girls that had been held captive in this sort of tortured dungeon of a man named Ariel Sanchez in Ohio, in Cleveland in particular. He had kidnapped them and held them in his dungeon for years and years and years. And through a series of events, they were, they were able to escape and find their freedom by the grace of God. And the man was arrested and charged and eventually went to prison. Well, Michelle Knight, one of the girls that was kidnapped, told NBC's Today Show, in sort of a stunning moment, where everybody understandably wanted the man to be punished for his sins, this woman who had been held under him for all these years said, I want him to be forgiven. And then she added, that's the way of life. Because he is a human being and every human being needs to be loved, even if he did wrong by me.
I can't imagine, I can't even begin to fathom what it would be like to extend the hand of forgiveness to someone who had done such evil to you. But one thing I do know, by her willingness to extend such forgiveness to this perpetrator, she was displaying the kind of love God gives to us. And yet as long-suffering and humble and forgiving as love is, it is also at the same times, at the same time and all times, truthful. Paul makes a point of this here. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Now with this, this last element, it's, it really is, we're, we're tying everything together. And then once again, it flies sort of in the face of what we often think love is. And here's, here's what I mean. What we're tempted to believe is that if we are long-suffering and we're humble and we're forgiving, then all we have to do is be sort of, well, kind of wimpy about our convictions, that it seems to go hand-in-hand with being forgiving and loving and humble. But that's not what Paul means here. Paul says, no, no, we ought not downplay that that which is wrong. We rejoice with the truth. That's part of what love is too. So if something is contrary to the truth as laid out in God's word, then it, it, well, it's, it's outside of the realms of that which is loving, according to Paul. Love does not rejoice in something that God's word explicitly condemns. So let me give you a couple of examples of what I think this looks like. In the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul is on one of his missionary journeys, and upon arriving in the city of Athens, the great cultural center of ancient Greece, where all the philosophers and the, you know, the hoity-toities hung out back in the day, all around him he saw statues of idols everywhere, statues of false gods everywhere he looked. And upon seeing these false gods and all of this false worship taking place, which had led to so much destruction in people's lives, Paul didn't just say, well, you know, what are you going to do? Everybody's kind of got their thing. No, Paul, it says, was so stirred up, he was so shaken by that, he was provoked, the text says, that he began preaching to them. Because love doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing and wants the truth to get out there, Paul couldn't contain himself from preaching the truth. On the flip side, when I think of what it looks like to rejoice with the truth, I I can't help but think of attending a large Christian conference some time ago. Big crowd, big, big crowd of people. A couple thousand of us were singing the song, The Power of the Cross. There's nothing quite like singing a song like that with a couple thousand other people all singing it at the top of their lungs. Oh, to see the pain written on your face, bearing the awesome weight of sin, every bitter thought, every evil deed, crowning your blood-stained brow. Now the daylight flees. Now the ground beneath quakes as its maker bows his head. Those are the lyrics. But then, but then we sang this part. First, it's all this dwelling on all the suffering of Christ. But then we sang these words, curtain torn in two, dead are raised to life, 
finished the victory cry, and I'm telling you, the whole place erupted as if the roof had opened up and the angels were singing with us. There was spontaneous applause from everyone at the declaration that Christ really had beat back death and hell and wiped away our sins. Love rejoices with the truth. So we've learned today what godly love really looks like. It's long-suffering, it's humble, it's forgiving, it's truthful. Now Paul caps it all off. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And suddenly it dawns on us, if we hadn't already noticed it, that the kind of love being talked about here is not something we naturally possess in and of ourselves. Who among us has always had this kind of love? Who has an unending love like what was described here? Bears all things? Endures all things? I haven't. Long-suffering all the time? Humble all the time? Forgiving all the time? Truthful their whole life long? I know I have not displayed this kind of love in my life nearly enough. And yet the truth is, every one of us needs the kind of love that is offered here. We need this kind of unconditional, sacrificial, faithful love to the end no matter what. And the good news for us today is there is one who lavishly gives it away. Ultimately, when we read this definition of love, what we're really reading is a description of Jesus Christ. Only Jesus is completely patient and kind always and forever. How long-suffering is he? He is so long-suffering that he comes down to this world, endures the pain of the cross and shame that comes with it for you and me, those who would naturally be his enemies. How humble is Jesus? Philippians 2 says, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, and eventually submitting to the cross. How forgiving is Jesus? The Bible says that when he was on that very real cross, as his enemies were taunting him and mocking him and pounding nails into his wrists, he cried out multiple times, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He is so forgiving that he promises to all who trust in him that every last sin of theirs is washed away completely. How truthful is Jesus? He's the way, the truth, and the life. So, when you think about what godly love is, what agape love is, all the things I've mentioned today are good. And they're good characteristics to desire for your life. They are. They're good things to pray that God would, would breed in you and work 
through you. But what I really want you to think about when you come across this chapter is not the next wedding you go to or not the ways that you need to do more. What I want you to first think about is Jesus. Because ultimately, his love is what saves. And his love is free for the taking to any who want it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that the kind of love described for us today gives us a roadmap for how to treat each other and for how to deal with the world around us, especially when it presents itself as unlovable or difficult or harsh. So much of what is said here is contrary to what our natures tell us to do. And yet it is what leads to peace and thanksgiving. And ultimately it leads because of Jesus displaying these characteristics to our salvation and to our eternal life. So I pray as we meditate on his love for us, that that would create more love in us for others. We ask this in the name of Jesus, who taught us to pray with one voice, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever.